My name is Mark Madison, and I am so very proud to have Fujitsu General America as a sponsor. At Fujitsu, they're focused on partnering with the best distributors and contractors to ensure that each Fujitsu heating and cooling system brings infinite comfort to every end user. Well, good morning. Welcome to episode two of my podcast. Mark Madison here. Today, I'd like to talk about optimism and attitude. Is it possible to bounce forward? It was September 1st, 1996, the last day of vacation in a lovely Lake Chelan, Washington resort. We went for one last bike ride with the boys. They were 10 and six years old at the time. We were preparing to leave, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw my wife, Debbie, was not wearing her helmet. Where's your helmet, I asked. Oh, she said, it messes up my hair. Frowning, I said, how can we ask the boys to wear one if we don't? Please put it on, hon, I said with the certainty and wisdom of a pastor. She sneered, yet reluctantly agreed. Twenty minutes later, a 16-year-old girl with a lead foot broadsided my wife, smashing her to the ground and breaking her leg in four places and bending the bike to an unrideable state. I'll never forget her screams. The call to 911 was devastating. Our lives would never be the same. Over the next year, our savings were wiped out, IRAs depleted, and we were eventually forced to sell our lovely home with a view of Mount Baker in Puget Sound. Five years of depositions, uncertainty, and fear followed. The settlement was a joke. I now understand the time value of money. Nothing prepares you for that kind of adversity. Financial, spiritual, physical, interpersonal, emotional, in hindsight, all these years later, it was one of the greatest blessings of our married life. You see, it forced Deb to stay home with the boys. It forced her to retire from an 18-year career in court reporting. She'd come to resent. It forced me to kick my newly formed business as a professional speaker into high gear, and I eventually wrote my third book, A Simple Choice, which turned out to be a cathartic process and would make a difference in my clients' lives. Philosopher Albert Camus once wrote, In the depth of winter, I finally learned that within me lie an invincible summer. Martin Seligman is one of my mentors. Though we've never met, I feel a kinship to him through his writing. His classic book, Learned Optimism, was a source of inspiration and healing for me during this challenging time. One of the fathers of positive psychology, he contends, Optimistic people generally feel good, Things will happen to us and will last a long time and have a beneficial effect on everything they do. And they think that bad things are isolated and temporary. They won't last too long and won't affect other parts of our life. He goes on to say, if you were an optimistic teen, you'll probably be optimistic at 80. People's reactions to bad events are highly stable over a half century or more. It dawned on me, I guess I was an optimistic teen. Each of us will encounter setbacks, disaster, and seemingly insurmountable tragedy in life if we only live long enough. Divorce, death of a loved one, financial setback, illness, loss of a job, the list goes on. You fill in the blank. It's not what happens, but how we respond that matters. Frederick Nietzsche said, 
What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Buddha once wrote, knock down seven times, stand up eight. And Emerson said, when it gets dark enough, we can see the stars. Challenges and setbacks give us longer legs for bigger strides. It provides us with perspective and objectivity, but not right away. Time and tide eventually wash away the pain. Over time, I came to a place of healing in my heart and soul. About three years after this event, when someone would ask me how I was, I replied, I'm grateful to be on this side of the grass. It turns out it's possible to bounce forward, honestly. In her newest book, Option B, Sheryl Sandberg calls it post-traumatic growth, or PTG. She contends, and I believe from experience, five things occur when PTG appear in our lives. One, we find personal strength. Two, we gain a deeper appreciation of life. Three, we find ways to develop deeper relationships with others. Four, we discover meaning and purpose in our lives. And five, we begin to see new possibilities. Socrates taught the world the answers are in the questions. Here are my four favorite questions to ask, preferably in my journal, in the midst of the storm. You see, what matters is continuing on, persistence, a constancy of purpose. We must take baby steps to get back on track. Question number one. What did you do well today? What specific actions did you take? It's the trying that matters. Question two. What are you looking forward to tomorrow? We must have little goals to prod us forward, to push us along. Question three. What are you grateful for? Despair cannot exist alongside gratitude. I make those lists in my journal. And question four, what am I learning from all this pain? Affecting change and making new mistakes is what matters. Pain's the ultimate teacher. Autopsies are performed when someone dies. Every great coach in every sport studies films of the losses more deeply than the wins. The U.S. Marines have created a culture where failure is seen as a learning opportunity. How does your organization view failures? Are you conducting debriefs and autopsies? The greatest gift mankind has is our freedom of choice. Suffering can give us purpose if we let it. Helen Keller was an American author, lecturer, and political activist. She was the first deaf, blind person to earn a bachelor's degree. She once said, when the door of happiness closes, another opens. But often we look so long at the closed door that we do not see the one which has been opened for us. I remember calling my good friend Kevin Thomas in 2006, 10 years after the collision, to tell him we'd purchased a condo in Lake Chelan. He said to me, that's so important. It's the beginning of healing for you and your family. You see, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Every dark cloud has a silver lining. It's up to us to look at it, find it, and give thanks. In the end, it's a choice. How will you choose? Ernest Hemingway once wrote, The world breaks everyone, and afterward, some are strong at broken places. I hope in some small way, this helps you navigate through rapids of change and setbacks. The best truly is yet to come. Worry is a misuse of the imagination. Just what did the Beatles and the Beach Boys have in common? In addition to great harmonies, 
unique mystical and musical stylings, it came down to the lyrics. In most of their songs, the lyrics are positive. You see, worry is a misuse of the imagination. I say that in my seminars, and someone in the audience invariably asks me to repeat it. Okay. Worry is a misuse of imagination. In a sense, it's negative goal-setting. In the song by the Beach Boys, Don't Worry Baby, they say, well, it's been building up inside me for, oh, I don't know how long. I don't know why, but I keep thinking something's bound to go wrong. But she looks in my eyes and makes me realize and says, don't worry, baby. Words combined with emotion, either positive or negative, impact our subconscious mind. It's a choice. In another song by the boys from Southern California, they affirm, Maybe if we think and wish and hope and pray, it might come true. Wouldn't it be nice? That's pretty good advice. I was in a grocery store the other day when I noticed the badge the young man was wearing at the checkout counter. In addition to his name, it said under it, The Realist. Smiling, I asked, Is that a movie? He frowned and said, No, it's my philosophy. Digging a little deeper, I asked, How do you mean? Frowning again, he replied with an obtuse tone, I keep it real. Huh? Was all I could say. When I got to my car, I googled the phrase. Webster defines it as concern for fact or reality and rejection of the impractical and the visionary. My take on this attitude when comparing to other philosophies is a pessimist is one who sees the glass as half empty. An optimist believes the glass is half full. A realist believes it's just a glass. No wonder I wasn't able to make a connection with this guy. I suppose I've always been an optimist. The fascinating thing about optimists? We live longer and have a better time along the way. Frederick Langbridge said, Two men look through the same bars. One sees mud, the other stars. Churchill said, A pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity, and an optimist sees opportunity in every difficulty. And finally, Wayne Dyer said, When I change the way I look at things, the things I look at change. Man's Search for Meaning Have you ever heard of Viktor Frankl? He was born in 1905 and died in 1997. But in 1942, Frankl and his parents, his wife, his brother, were arrested and sent to Therenstadt, the concentration camp. Frankl's father died there within six months. Over the course of three years, Frankl was moved between four concentration camps, including Auschwitz, where his brother died and his mother was killed. Franklin's wife died at Bergen-Belsen. When Frankel's camp was liberated in 1945, he learned of the death of all of his immediate family members, with the exception of his sister, who somehow had emigrated to Australia. In the camps, Frankel and fellow prisoners made an effort to address the despondency they observed in other inmates. In an effort to prevent suicide attempts, Frankel and others tried to help other inmates facing severe depression by encouraging them to reflect on positive memories, scenes, and thoughts, he called it logotherapy. You see, it's not what happens to us, it's how we respond. Frankel wrote in his amazing book, Man's Search for Meeting, which a friend gave me years ago and I read in two sittings. Frankel said, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the great freedoms, to choose one's attitude in every, get his, in every given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. He went on to say, we are no longer able to change a situation, then we are faced or challenged to change ourselves. 
In closing, he states, ironically enough, in the same way that fear brings to pass what one is afraid of, likewise a forced intention makes impossible what one forcibly wishes. Pleasure is, and must remain, a side effect or byproduct, and is destroyed and spoiled to the degree to which is made a goal in itself. In the early 1990s, I was lost. By lost, I don't mean I couldn't find my way home, or lost like the TV show where my plane crashed on a tropical island with black smoke monsters and polar bears. Lost as in, did my professional life have meaning and purpose? I was the top salesman of my company. I had a loving wife and two beautiful boys, a magnificent home with a sweeping view of Puget Sound and Mount Baker, and oh yes, a pool. I was at a crossroads. Is this all there is? By most standards, I was living the American dream. So why was I discontent? Why was I feeling sorry for myself? I do not recall how I came to read Viktor Frankl's book. Again, I think a friend gave it to me, but once I picked up Man's Search for Meaning and started reading it, I couldn't put it down. It was the first time I read a book in one day in two separate sittings. You see, Mr. Frankl was a Jewish professor in Austria. He was captured by the SS and interned in Auschwitz, and I already told you the rest of the story. But here's the thing I didn't say. He literally embraced the notion that he could choose his response to what was happening to him, and one night he made a decision. He would visualize a future whereby he was back in Austria speaking to a thousand students and describing the death camp and how he survived it. You see, he was a professor, and that's what he looked forward to, this imaginary talk that he gave to students. Inspired by his imagination, he set about serving others. He shared his food with other men. He encouraged them and told them there was hope. And he was civil to his captors and did whatever he could to lift not only his own spirits, but the spirits of others as well. Some of my favorite quotes from Frankel. We are no longer able to change a situation. We are challenged to change ourselves. Everything can be taken from a man. Everything except one the last of the great human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given of circumstances and to choose one's own way. What is give light must endure burning. Let me say that again. What is to give light must endure burning. Huh. Between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies growth and freedom. Evermore, people today have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. There it is. In the midst of Victor's words was what I was searching for. Meaning. My life needed meaning. It wasn't enough to make a six-figure income. Meaning didn't come from things or money. Dr. Seligman, in his book Learned Optimism, contends there's five factors for happiness. One positive emotions, two, pleasure, three, relationships, four, engagement, five, meaning. Of these five factors, he believes only the last two, engagement and meaning, are the most important. Becoming more engaged in what we do by finding ways to make our life more meaningful is the surest way to finding happiness. When our daily actions fulfill a bigger purpose, the most enduring and powerful happiness can happen. Perhaps joy is a better word than happiness. When we find meaning in our work, joy shows up and bolsters us with the positive emotions and pleasure and enhanced relationships. 
Shortly after reading Frankel's book, my search for meaning was manifest. An old mentor of mine appeared in my life by way of a seminar. Over the next year, we reconnected several times. He eventually offered me a position in his business training and education for corporations. After much deliberation and prayer, I accepted his offer. It was the most difficult decision I ever made. After almost four years with him, I went out on my own. Then I wrote my first book. Then another. It's been over 25 years now. And every day, I write. I write three pages a day. I speak to audiences around the world. I deliver keynotes and seminars and workshops and podcasts and coaching and mentoring. I've written hundreds of articles for dozens of magazines and, of course, posted lots of articles on LinkedIn and Facebook. You see, today I follow my bliss. My work has true meaning. I'd like to think I'm making a difference in my clients' lives. No one has to tell me to get to work. I'm self-employed. When I call in sick, I know I'm lying. I take six weeks off a year to spend time with my family in July and December. I used to save money and use people. Now I save people and use money. I have a wealth of friends and my life has balance. I work and play every day to make a difference in other people's lives. I'll never know what it's like to be in a Nazi death camp or to lose my wife, sister, parents to tyrants. But I do know this. I love what I do. It's a calling. I'll be doing it until my last breath. I'm constantly amazed at how stupid I was two years ago and the cycle keeps repeating. I keep searching for ways to improve the quality and quantity of my service to others. This podcast is proof of that. Money is the applause for my work. It's an effect. The cause is my service to others. So here's my question for you. Would you like to earn more? Learn more. Serve more. Find meaning and purpose for and in your life. I had a poem in my office for years on the wall that said simply, Only one life that soon is past. Only what's done with love will last. Viktor Frankl understood what it meant. When he said, I grasp the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. Today I'm content. Today I'm grateful. Today my life has meaning and purpose. How about you? Why not you? You see, that last question, why not you, is a question Russell Wilson's father asked him just before he died. He said, Russell, why not you in the NFL? Russell, why not you winning a Super Bowl? A simple question like, why not you, can change our lives. Here are some more questions that have assisted me in navigating my way through the rapids of change, setbacks, and challenges. Question number one, how do you know it's bad? Question number two, what's great about this situation? Question three, what can I learn from this and use in the future? Question four, what am I grateful for? As I was writing this, I was listening to the Beach Boys, Amazing and positive, inspiring LP, Pet Sounds. You see, that particular record's filled with hope, love, and possibility, and oh yes, joy. Today I choose not to worry. It really is a misuse of my imagination. How about you? Unhappiness. Most people want to be happy. Abe Lincoln said, a fellow's about as happy as he makes up his mind to be. I like that. If you ask 100 people, 80% will say, of course I want to be happy. Doesn't everyone? Yet most of those people are not. Why? What causes happiness? Can it be created? I believe the answer is yes. 
Many sociologists believe happiness is like spontaneous combustion. It just happens when all the conditions are just so. To be sure, it's temporal and goes as quickly as it comes. I can be happy if someone gives me a gift. Yet I can be equally happy if I give a gift to someone I care about. So it's up to me. Give first, get later. If I keep giving my time, knowledge, empathetic ear, and prayers to others, it must come, soon or late. In her book, The Myth of Happiness, Dr. Sonia Lebowski says, What specific activities can we perform to increase our happiness? I love that it's just three things. Simple, short, and sweet. Here's what she suggests. 1. Count your blessings and gratitudes at the start of every day. Give yourself concentrated time with them by writing them down in a journal. 2. Cultivate optimism by choosing beforehand to look on the bright side of situations, events, and future possibilities. And 3. Negate the negative by deliberately limiting time spent dwelling on problems or unhealthy comparisons with others. In other words, compete and compare with your own best self. The key, she claims, is consistency. We must do it every day. And like compound interest, it builds a foundation upon which we can build a life filled with happiness, joy, and an enthusiasm for life. I would add a few more. Let's just call it my magnificent seven. Number four, associate with positive, upbeat, happy people. Speedboats, not anchors. Five, learn to laugh and make others laugh every day. Six, listen to positive music with a meaningful message. And seven, watch inspiring movies that instruct and make you think. Buddha said thousands of candles can be lighted from a single candle, and the life of the candle will not be shortened. Happiness never decreases by being shared. Henry David Thoreau wrote, There is no value in life except what you choose to place upon it, and no happiness in any place except what you bring to yourself. Marcus Aurelius wrote, The happiness of your life depends upon the quality of your thoughts. Therefore, guard accordingly and take care that you entertain no notions unsuitable to virtue and reasonable nature. In the final analysis, the level of happiness, joy, and contentment lies within. If it's to be, it's up to me and you. My natural state is cynicism, negativity, criticizing, and complaining. As a young boy, it surrounded me, hovering over my head like a dark cloud. I've had more than my fair share of setbacks, frustrations, and heartache, and death, and sadness, and loss. But if we live long enough, we all experience these things. But it's what I do with what happens to me that counts. It comes down to focus. Whatever I choose to focus on grows. What I ignore withers. What will you do today to create more happiness in your life and in the lives of other people? Life truly is short, too short to be unhappy. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Fujitsu General America. And like this podcast, they're focused on education and development. From the day they sold their first comfort system in North America, they've been unwavering in their focus on training. It doesn't matter if it's application, installation, or service. A better trained technician brings better value to the homeowner. So when you're looking for infinite comfort, think Fujitsu. Thank you for listening. If I struck a chord, inspire you to action, or piqued your curiosity, let me know. Call or text me at 206-697-0454 or send me an email at mark at sparkingsuccess.net. Should you wish to hire me to speak to your organization or association or order one of my books, 
simply go to my website, www.sparkingsuccess.net. And remember, make it a great day, unless you have other plans. <laughs>